quite a few years ago, in fact, it was probably, Camille and I were just talking about this this morning, it was probably about 2004 or so when we, way back then, were students in college. We're getting really old. That, you know, we were students in college in 2004. Can you believe that? We, one particular Sabbath, we were decided that we would have some, like a church service on a beach in Michigan. We attended Andrews University. I did for all of my schooling. Camille did for a few years. And so we went to one of the local beaches, and we were going to just have like an informal worship service on the beach. And um, as you might know, Michigan, of course, is on Lake Michigan, and so there's really nice beaches that are on this big, huge lake that are almost like an ocean. That's like, as I like to say, my favorite part of Michigan is about three feet off of shore. But that's another story. Uh, but we were there, and we were having this worship service. I don't know, maybe there was 20, 30 students along with us, and we were singing praises to God, and we were, you know, someone was preaching. And all of a sudden, as we were there, it was the fall, I think it was the fall, somebody came up with this giant semi it was just a cab. It was not, there was no, there was no um, trailer behind it. But this huge semi came up to, into the parking lot. And all of a sudden, these young people, along with an older man and an older woman, filed out of the semi, the cab, and they started marching towards us. And they had big, huge signs, banners on these poles that they were holding. And they came over to us, and they started yelling at us. And they were yelling at us, you need to repent, repent, repent. And they were trying to tell us that we were going to hell. This is what they were telling us. Now, as, I just, as, as we just sat there dumbfounded, we, we were trying to explain to them, no, 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 we're Christians too, we're Christians. But they would hear nothing of it. They had a message that they were there to bring, and they wanted us to know that we were going to hell because we were not subscribed to their particular brand of Christianity. After the whole experience, which we just were blown away by, we thought it was the weirdest thing, we, we, we actually Googled the situation. And we came to discover that this was a family of a mother and a father, and I don't know, six, six or seven children, and they would actually go around the country doing this very thing. They had a message to bear. They had a salvation to proclaim. And we come to discover that later on that day, they were going to be traveling to the University of Notre Dame, which is just down the, down the highway from uh, Andrews University, and they were going to be doing this very thing, this very same thing, at a Notre Dame football game, where they were standing, they would stand outside the stadium, and they would announce to everybody that they were all going to hell if they didn't repent. You know, as I reflect on that experience, there's a few things that come to mind, probably a few things that come to your mind as well. One of which, though, is that it must be very lonely to be the only people on earth who are saved. Right? Just like a, a family of seven or eight people. This very exclusivist perspective. This attitude which says, we have the truth. 
And if you don't accept our truth, you're going to hell. You need to repent and you need to get on board with the thing that we are proclaiming, the thing that we are preaching, the beliefs that we have. It's rather interesting because in this day and age here in the United States of America and in what we would call the Western world, those nations that are, are, have a, a higher uh, socioeconomic situation, higher educational status, more and more people are subscribing to what is broadly termed pluralism. I don't know if you've been driving around town before and you look and somebody has a bumper sticker and it says, anyone know what a bumper sticker says? Coexist, yeah. We see those people driving around frequently and this is the prevailing attitude that is becoming more and more prevalent among societies of the West. It is expressed, there was a, a, some research that has been done and I came across some of it this morning. This is uh, in the journal, the Harvard Gazette. This is uh, something that they were commenting on. It says 71% of Americans believe Christians have a duty to be tolerant of other religious faiths and, quote, leave them alone, said Robert Withnow, who is a professor of sociology at Princeton University. This indicates that tolerance is a mark of citizenship, even a mark of Christian citizenship. So more and more people are, are proclaiming this idea that we need to be tolerant of others and we ha shouldn't have this exclusivist attitude that we alone are saved, that we alone are God's people, that we alone have truth. And so there's less and less tolerance for those of us who are intolerant, right? That's, the, of course, the irony is that those who are proclaiming tolerance are intolerant of those who aren't tolerant. But, you know, as we think about, as we discuss, we're now, I think this is the 10th sermon. I promise you, I don't make promises usually, but this week and then next week are the last ones in the series. But we're talking about this, this idea of a viral revolution that we, we springboarded from the book of Revelation, chapter 17, where, where the revelator, John, says that there would come a time when the earth would be illuminated with God's glory that all the world would have an encounter with the love of, of God in Christ, and that it would take place as they encounter us who are on God's mission, as we allow God to change us, as we allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to so penetrate our hearts that it actually changes us and turns us into gospel-loving, gospel-living, and gospel-proclaiming people. But, you know, we live at this certain juncture, this certain moment of Earth's history where there's this, there's this tension because we understand and we maintain that there's this powerful, beautiful message, this powerful, beautiful mission that God is inviting us to participate in, and yet fewer and fewer people are willing to listen to a message that is very exclusivist and intolerant. So we find ourselves in this conundrum. I want to look at a passage in Scripture that kind of pulls back the curtain on this very dilemma, and it's taken from the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, there's also a telling of this in Luke's Gospel as well. But notice this experience. Perhaps, perhaps you've read it before. 
But notice Mark, and it's in Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 41. I'm going to be citing it here from the New Living Translation. Notice how Mark recounts the story. He said, John said to Jesus, teacher, 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 we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because, check out, I love the way the New Living Translation puts this, we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. That's interesting, isn't it? He was casting out demons in your name. But we demanded, we told him that he had to stop because he's not a part of us. He's not in our exclusive group. He is not one of us. He is not following along with us. That sounds like an all-too-familiar attitude. As I said, that, that, that story in the beginning, the, the family in the beginning, they were coming to other Christians and they were saying to other Christians, repent and, and be saved. And turn from your wicked ways. And we're like, oh, but we're, we're also Christians. And they wouldn't hear anything of it. I think this attitude is far too prevalent sometimes in my own experience. In my own attitude. As I look at others and I think to myself, you know, they're not a part of my church. So obviously they can't be a part of what God is up to. Obviously they can't be a part of what God is trying to do in this moment of of this viral revolution, you know, they're not a part of our group. They're not a part of our church. They're not a part of our denomination. They're not a part of, of what God is doing in us. Now notice what Jesus says. Very interesting. Not surprisingly. But notice he says, don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me Anyone who is not against us is what? For us. Anyone who is not against us is for us. He goes on to say, if anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. One of the things that we have kind of been surprised to discover as we have, I'm speaking of now my immediate family, Camille and myself. As we, have, as we have decided to become more outward focused and as we've decided to become more what is termed missional in our life, as we're trying to meet people and, and, and show them Jesus, one of the things that we've been surprised to discover is that if people welcome us, into their lives. They may not be conscious of it, but what they are actually doing is they are welcoming Jesus into their lives through us. And if they like us, they actually like Jesus. Very fascinating phenomenon. Now, it's not because we are these great people. And it's not because we're perfect. But as we have allowed Jesus to, to live in us, why else would somebody who is not a Christian be willing to hang out with somebody who is a Christian, right? And we've had different friends who for the longest time we thought, oh, those people have no interest in Jesus whatsoever. And then we came to discover that actually when we got courageous enough to ask them about Jesus, they expressed interest. And we thought to ourselves, 
oh, of course. Why would a non-Christian want to hang out with a Christian, assuming, let me put a caveat in place, assuming that that Christian is acting somewhat Christ-like, right? (laughs) Because there's plenty of Christians who aren't necessarily doing what Christ did or does. But assuming that we're living a surrendered life, Jesus says, listen, if they receive you, elsewhere he actually says this, if they receive you, they receive me. If they listen to you, they listen to me. And so what Jesus is here demonstrating is that there are people who are in all walks of life. There are people who are in all different groups and understandings who are being led by his spirit into this viral revolution. And they may not dress right, talk right, eat right, believe exactly right right now, but Jesus says if they're not against us, they're for us. If they receive you, they receive me. Elsewhere, Jesus put it this way in the book of Oh boy, I forgot to change the bottom slide there. This is the book of John, chapter 10, and verse 16. This is how it goes in the New King James Version. Jesus says, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Jesus wanted to make it clear that this this revolution that he was inaugurating, this revolution that he was starting, was not just exclusive to the Jewish people. Now, Don't misunderstand me. There's this tension, as I mentioned before, that Jesus was seeking to to live within. There's this line he was seeking to walk because there was on another occasion where he was besides this well in Samaria and he was talking to this woman and they were going back and forth about what mountain to worship on and she says, well, we have this mountain that we worship on and Jesus said, he didn't pull any punches. He said, well, I want to tell you, lady, Salvation is of the Jews. Now, what he was not meaning by that is that you could only be saved if you are a Jew, but that the good news of God's boundless love and his saving work was expressed in and revealed through the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish people. So there's this tension that he was seeking to to, to live within. There was this line he was seeking to walk, and that is, on the one hand... There's this beautiful, powerful paradigm, this beautiful picture, this story that God is working out through people who have caught a hold of it. But there's also this reality that others are being led by the Spirit outside of that particular understanding. But he is bringing them in. As Jesus goes on to say, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. Them also I must do what? He's like, I'm not going to just leave them there. I must also bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So God was instigating, he was inaugurating this revolution, this movement, where he was appealing to people of all classes, of all religious backgrounds, of all society. He was inviting them into that one fold, and yet he recognized that people needed time. People needed the the freedom and the liberty to, as the Spirit was moving them, as the Spirit was leading them, to draw them in by his love. There's this quote, and I was going really deep in these quotes this last week because I recorded an episode for our podcast that is a little bit controversial, perhaps. I wanted to, you know, make the title provocative, but 
the title of the podcast, which will be coming out this next week. Are you guys going to be able to handle this? It was, it's called Ellen White Hates Tradition. All right? And I'm, I'm, I'm taking that based upon quotes like this. Check out what she says here. This is from the book Desire of Ages. A couple different places. The ministry of Christ was marked in contrast to that of the Jewish elders. Their regard for, what's the word she uses here? Tradition and formalism had destroyed all real freedom of thought or action. That's an indictment upon them, wasn't it? They were not willing to extend liberty to other people. They were trying to regulate even the thinking that people engaged in. She says they, their regard for tradition and formalism had destroyed all real freedom of thought or action. They lived in continual dread of defilement. To avoid contact with the unclean, they kept aloof. Not only from the Gentiles, they were not only aloof and distant from the Gentiles, of course, but from the majority of their own people, seeking neither to benefit them nor to win their friendship. Interesting commentary, isn't it? She goes on to say, by dwelling constantly on these matters, that is tradition and formalism, they had dwarfed their minds and narrowed the orbit of their lives. They had just become so limited in their, in their movement in life. Could only associate with certain people, could only go certain places, and so they were just basically, they were just basically uh, separatists. That's literally, you know, perhaps I've shared this before, the word Pharisee means, do you remember? Anyone remember? I've said this before. The word Pharisee means a separatist. Somebody who removes themselves from social contact with others. Goes on to say, their example encouraged egotism and intolerance among all classes of the people. Now check out this next one. This is one of my favorite quotes. It's just a mic drop. I'm not holding a mic, but if I was, I would drop it, okay? This is what she says. She goes on to say this. Check this out. Buckle your seatbelt. She says, the Jewish people had been made the depositories of sacred truth but Phariseeism had made them the most exclusive, the most bigoted of all the human race. Wow. That's pretty strong, isn't it? I try not to post these on social media because I have Jewish friends that, that follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I've said a few of these things before, and my rabbi friend's like, uh, we need to talk, Sean. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we probably should. Uh, but he goes on to say, she goes on to say, everything... How much? Everything about the priests and rulers. Now check out what she cites here. Their dress, their customs, their ceremonies, their traditions made them unfit to be the light of the world. They were trying to be so exclusive in their attitudes, so exclusive in the way they dress, so exclusive in the customs and the practices and the ceremonies that they were not even able to be a light of the world. She goes on to say, they looked upon themselves, the Jewish nation, as the world. Can you imagine that? Like, that's, they, they, just, they concluded that they were basically the only people in the world. But nobody else mattered. It only matters is what we do, how we act, how we live. There was no, there was no sympathy for anyone else outside of the Jewish Faith. But check this out. But Christ commissioned his disciples to proclaim a faith and worship that would have in it 
nothing of caste or country, a faith that we be adapted, adapted, that's a key term, to all peoples, all nations, all classes of men. I'm going in a couple of weeks down to Tennessee to go speak a couple times, and I have a friend down there who's a really good friend of mine. I've known him most of my life, and he pastors a church in the Chattanooga area, and he's invited me to speak there. And I know that his congregation is maybe a little more traditional than our congregation here. And so I literally was just kind of joking with him last night. I said, is there any way that I could get away with not wearing a suit to preach in your congregation? And I said, or would that not be incarnational? And he, he laughed at it. He said, no, you don't have to wear a suit, but at least wear a tie. And I said, to those who wear ties, I wore a tie. To those who didn't wear a tie, I didn't wear a tie. I have become all things to all people so that I might gain some, right? Like, you've got to be contextual. You've got to adapt it to all peoples. If you want to win the tie wearers, you've got to wear a tie, right? Amen? But it goes the other way, too. And God invites us to adapt this faith so that others can understand it and they're not distracted by things other than the gospel. There's this, there's this, this mind-blowing line that the Apostle John expresses in his first epistle. I'm very tempted to try pause and hear what Camille just said. <laughs> Check this out. <laughs> first John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God and What's the next word? Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now that's a really provocative thing for John to say. Everyone, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So friends, wherever we see people participating in other-centered, selfless love, it means that the Spirit is working on their hearts and drawing them into this revolution of love. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. It's not this, like, free love thing where, oh, you know, all that matters is just we love each other and, you know, truth doesn't matter. That's not what... John is saying, it's not what Jesus is saying. But at the very least, when God is working on hearts, love is the fruit of that and then the expression and the reflection of people who are starting to join up with this viral revolution. Check out, I've been reading the book Thoughts from Mount of Blessing once again, becoming my favorite book from Ellen White. It's just so powerful. She puts it this way, every word or deed, every word or deed of unselfish kindness is an expression of the love of Christ for lost humanity. That's interesting. Wherever we see that happening, wherever we see people participating in other-centered love, that's an expression of Christ's love. It is not earthly rank, nor birth, nor nationality 
nor religious privilege. I'm going to ask, don't let the kids in just yet because I have a little story that I don't want them to hear. (laughs) It is not earthly rank, nor birth, nor nationality, nor religious privilege, which proves that we are members of the family of God. It is love, a love that embraces all humanity. It is only the Spirit of God that gives love for hatred, to be kind to the unthankful and to the evil, to do good, hoping for nothing again, is the insignia of the royalty of heaven, the sure token by which the children of the highest reveal their highest state. Okay, here's the story. A couple years ago, uh, our neighbor friend, our neighbor kid, there's a Kim, one of his good friends, um, lives down the street, and they invited us one Christmas to a Christmas cookie decorating party. And it was going to be on a Friday night. And we were thinking to ourselves, well, you know, it is Sabbath. And I don't know, should we, should we go? You know, it's not going to be t- typically what we do on Sabbath. But, you know, we felt like the Spirit was inviting us to, to go and be missional and to, 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 you know, lean into life with these people, especially since they had actually changed their time because usually they do it on Saturday mornings. But they knew that we go to church on Sabbath mornings, and so they switched it to Friday night. And so I took the three kids, and I went down there, and um, it was myself, my children, and Camden's friend, who comes frequently here to church with Camden, and then his two parents who are two moms and also one of their other friends and then his dad. And, you know, we've been trying to navigate life in that context with our children. And at first we're like, oh man, our son has a friend who has two moms. And that's a whole conversation that do we want to have that conversation at you know, seven years old with our kid. And I realized, you know what? As a child, I grew up with friends whose parents weren't in exactly the most ideal of circumstances either. And I didn't grow up to think, oh, that's okay, you know? So um, we went, and the kids were decorating our cookies, and the, the parents of both of our Camden's friends, we just sat there and they were completely, their whole paradigm was turned upside down about what they thought a Christian was. They, uh, they asked me, well, first of all, the father of the other kid, he said, yeah, I knew some Seventh-day Adventists when I worked in Wisconsin. There was two women that I worked with at my work they were Seventh-day Adventists. He's like, the strangest thing, though, all the women had to be in their houses by sunset on Friday night. I said, really? He said, yeah, the men, they could do whatever they wanted, but the women had to be in their houses by sunset on Friday night. I'm just like, I don't think that is true. And that's certainly not anything I subscribe to. And then the... The two ladies, they were just really curious, and one of them had grown up Mormon and had been ostracized from that faith. 
another one had just been kind of Unitarian and um, you know one of the neatest things was when we went to eat supper they stopped and one of the women said now Sean we would be honored if you had a blessing on the food and I thought to myself you know I wonder how many of us Christians would be so sensitive to other people's particular belief systems that we would politely honor their practices when they were in our home you know, the other thing they said is, um, now, do you guys believe that the Bible is the word of God? Now, where do you think they were coming from with that question? Because, because I know that how I answer that is going to now fill in blanks in their minds that shouldn't be filled in. Right? And when they hear this answer of, yes, the Bible is the word of God, immediately their thought that's going to come in mind, to mind is, so you think I'm going to hell. Because that is the way that they have encountered this proclamation about the word of God before. And so I said, which is rather accurate, as we, Seventh-day Adventists, actually have a little advantage over many other Christians, that we said, I said, you know what? The Bible, I believe, was inspired by God, but it was written by human beings. It was not dictated by God. In other words, the Bible writers did not have their hand being controlled by God. Ellen White says this in the book Selected Messages. But I wasn't trying to just be cute or, or, you know, trying to get around things. But you know what? These ladies, and they, they also said, you know, you're probably a Republican who votes, you know, down the line and, you know, Donald Trump and all that. And I said, well, you know, I'm not this conservative, crazy conservative guy. And they just, wanted to, they just wanted to talk about how they understood that the most important thing in life was to treat others with kindness and respect. And, you know, I left that meeting just incredibly blessed. And I said to myself, you know what? Again, you're going to go out of maybe this room today and you're going to think to yourself, oh, man, this guy is off his rocker. I said, you know what, I don't know that maybe those three people there in that room are closer to God's kingdom than many Christians I know. Now, I want to make it unequivocally clear, all right? I am fully sold out to the beautiful message of Adventism, including, but not limited to, its understanding of marriage. I want to make that unequivocally clear. At the same time, I know that we can both affirm what Scripture teaches and yet affirm people. Now, notice I did not say affirm everything they do but we can both affirm what the Bible teaches and yet affirm people as people who are, to the degree that they are responding to God's spirit 
are leaning into and walking towards his truth in his heart. So I just want to make this. Let me just put this in on the screen up here, okay? There's three things. I know I've gone over time here. But there's three things that I believe as it relates to this topic. Number one, Christianity in general and Adventism in particular have a beautiful and unique message and mission. Does that sound resonant with you? However, this message and mission are inclusive, not exclusive. Meaning, we don't look down on other people because they're not right where we are at this moment. And you know what? We may not be where we think we are. (laughs) We have a lot of growth and a lot of things to learn and a lot of things to unlearn. And then number three, all who are growing in love in love, everyone who loves is born of God, are moving towards God and are progressively joining his viral revolution. I'm trying to walk this very narrow path here this morning, right? I'm trying to walk this very narrow path. I want to affirm, and I don't want anyone to say, you know, Pastor Brace, my goodness, we could see it coming. He's, 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 he's on his way out the door. He's on his way out of the faith. Not at all. I think God... In Christ, Jesus walked that line. He tried to walk that line so carefully where he affirmed people, he loved people, and yet he had a ridiculously high standard of righteousness. And he walked that line where he embraced people and he recognized that the Spirit was moving on people even if they weren't exactly where he thought they should be at that time. And so for me, I'm learning by God's grace. This is what I'm learning, that I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to grow. And I am learning that what is more important than where a person is at any particular moment is that they are heading in the right direction. And that takes, of course, a lot of patience and love. And it takes God's grace to, to lovingly journey with people no matter where they are or where they're coming from. So... Did I walk any sort of line? Or, I mean, we can get very easily off into one ditch or the other. I would say, however, that if I'm going to err, I want to err on the side of mercy. I want to err on the side of grace. And I want to give the Spirit the opportunity to do convicting and to do leading and to bring people into fellowship with Him. All right?